Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark. We so missed all of you while we were on vacation. We want to thank you for that time. It was well used to replenish and to refresh. To replenish and refresh. How refreshed am I, Pastor? We are so appreciative as well for the prayers during a, a very rough bout with COVID during my time off. It was so comforting to know that HHBC was in such good hands. And to that end, I want to thank Brother Brent as well for leading us through a wonderful section of Hebrews 12. How timely that message was for us as we launch into 2022 and last week making a spectacular connection as well to the condition of leprosy of the body and of our condition of sin, which manifests, of course, in both our body and our heart. Now, I hope you can tuck those truths away that Brent shared with us, those commands and those exhortations away in your heart as we prepare to be joyful warriors this year, growing in the Lord, being sanctified by his word. We have many big things planned for 2022, some of which we spoke of in our letter update to the church. We're praying for adult Bible studies for both men and women, growing our Sunday morning Bible studies with Brent and Harold as well. And we're excited to be launching as well our first VBS this year as the Lord brings the people and the resources for that. I thought I'd give you an update as well. We were able to send off over $5,000 to the Lottie Moon offering this year. That's wonderful. Talking about VBS, I found myself humming a song from a very famous vacation Bible school program the other day. And you might know it, the children sing, Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. And of course, they have all the motions that go with the song. It's a great song. And we, and we know what the program is ta- trying to teach the children. But is the last part of that very catchy song actually true? Is there nothing our God cannot do? Not at all. There are many things our God cannot do. And of course, we know what we mean when we say that our God can do anything. They mean that he's sovereign over all, that he orchestrates and he orders the affairs and the details of the lives of men. But scripture shows us that there are, in fact, many things that God cannot do. Can God change? No, God cannot change. God spoke in Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. The fancy word for that is immutable. God does not change. He cannot change. He's incapable of change. If he did change, he either would have been imperfect before he changed or imperfect after he changed. God cannot change. What a comfort that is in our ever-changing world, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's many things our God cannot do. Our God cannot lie. Our God never lies, Titus 1-2. Because he cannot lie, that means our God can never break a promise. The psalmist writes, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. God is incapable of breaking a promise to you or I. He cannot be unfaithful, nor can God share his glory with another. The Lord speaks through Isaiah in 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God cannot share his glory. He's incapable of it. The list goes on. God cannot look upon sin. He cannot overlook it. He cannot excuse it. Again, in Isaiah 59, verse 2, 
But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He can't do it because our hearts are so constantly manufacturing these idols. As John Calvin said, we mold God into our image. We often think God is somehow corrupt or corruptible like ourselves, that he gives a wink and a nod to our sin. No, our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. Boy, that sure makes the good news of the gospel truly good news, doesn't it? For through Jesus, we have access to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. There are many things God cannot do. God can never stop loving his people. The Lord appeared to him a long ago saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you out with kindness. God could never set aside his everlasting love for his people. He can't do it. He cannot change. He cannot tell a lie. He cannot break a promise. He cannot look past our sin. He cannot stop loving his people. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. Praise the Lord. There are many things our God cannot do. Amen? Amen. Well, before our dear brother Brent kicked off our new year in Hebrews and Matthew, we not only had a 35,000 foot review of some notable places we've been in Mark up to this point, but we've been enjoying and we've been basking in the very rare air of certain scenes as our gospel moves forward. Pivotal moments. And the week before our review that we enjoyed, we had a message titled Kingdom Without a Cross. And we clawed our way through one of the most jarring scenes in Scripture. By way of reminder, if we look to our previous verses that brought us to today, verses 31 through 33, chapter 8, 31 through 33, we saw Jesus revealing in plain language to his disciples that Jesus must suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be killed and after three days rise again. Of course, we know that this flew in the face of everything they had ever been taught about Messiah that would come to redeem Israel. They looked for a conquering military and political Messiah. A suffering servant was not on their radar. A crucified Messiah was a foreign concept. That's what happens when we give ear to tradition and pontification instead of just reading the text. The Old Testament and their Torah, the scrolls that they possessed and testified loudly of in their synagogues every day, testified of a suffering servant to come. Take the nearly 400 messianic prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of Messiah, and you would see a picture of Jesus. You would see his lowly birth, his rejection by men, his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. It's all there, but we're all byproducts of our times, aren't we? Whether we want to admit it or not, we are deeply influenced by our culture and by the prevailing winds of the day. Thus, Jesus now speaks plainly to the disciples. He told them clearly what must happen. In an unthinkable scene, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. The creation calls out the creator. The clay tells the potter that he's doing it wrong, that he's got it all wrong. And we beheld the type of rebuke also that Peter gave Jesus, didn't we? Now, a rebuke, of course, can run a wild gamut from from a soft rebuke to a hard rebuke. 
And Peter's rebuke to Jesus was hard. It was not only hard, but was a type of rebuke that was given by one in authority. Meaning one giving this type of rebuke expected to be obeyed. That sounds kind of funny when we consider that, doesn't it? It seems almost laughable. Peter rebuking Jesus from a place of perceived authority. In a tragic moment, Peter puts himself in the place of God. He tells Jesus that the plan of the ages, the cross which was in view from the very moment God said, let there be light, that was never going to happen. And in saying that, Peter became an unwitting surrogate of Satan. Dr. John MacArthur wrote of this scene, quote, when you put yourself in the place of God, you end up putting yourself in the place of Satan, close quote. And indeed, with Peter's rebuke, we were taken back in a flash to a scene in the wilderness. The devil tempting a physically weakened Jesus to stop the suffering, to take up what was rightfully his as the son of God. Don't be humiliated, Jesus. Be exalted. You're the son of God, are you not? Satan chided him. Take up your kingdom. Take it up now. Do it and you will never go to the cross. Because the cross is the path of humiliation, not exaltation. But there was no way that Peter was going to see the one he had just confessed as the Christ. No way that he was going to see him humiliated, suffered, tortured, and killed. No way. Go around the cross. Go around it. Someone so great as you shouldn't have to suffer. And of course, we can say, oh, Peter, oh, Peter. But all of us want to go around pain, don't we? We go to great lengths in our life to give ourselves comfort. We don't want to feel pain. Not from family members all the way to the dentist chair. We want to avoid pain. When the devil left Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't leave for good. We're reminded by Scripture that Satan left until an opportune time. And here Satan comes. And who could have seen this coming? The voice of Satan coming from Jesus' right-hand man, from Peter. And Jesus recognizes this foul smell of Satan's temptation, not only from Peter, but that the entire posse of disciples are thinking this way. And so Jesus issues a stunning rebuke, telling them what? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I want us to appreciate the roller coaster that these men are on. We have gone from a spiritual mountaintop of Caesarea Philippi with the proclamation of the ages made by Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That euphoria that came with getting the ultimate question of the ages right. Who do people say that I am? From mountain high to valley low. From the proclamation of the ages, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, to the smackdown of the ages, get behind me, Satan. This is literary whiplash for these men. And today we'll begin a new series that is going to challenge and stretch us. The disciples are about to hear a gospel that they've never heard before. Indeed, this may be a gospel that you have never heard before. They're about to see the cost of discipleship. They're about to hear God's gospel. They're about to hear the gospel according to the author himself. If Jesus were to have ever given an altar call in the gospel of Mark, we'll see it here. And after today, all hopes 
by the disciples of some kind of euphoric reign alongside Messiah as as generals in the new messianic army would be permanently dashed on the rocks. Jesus' call, Jesus' gospel call was to count the cost. A call to deny themselves. And what we are imagining in the world system, what the redemption of man looks like, what being a disciple looks like, they have not counted the cost. But it will cost Jesus, and it will cost us. We are being called out in our text today, and all within the sound of Jesus' voice in our text this morning had better bring their calculators. There's a cost to follow me. I'm going to give you the equation, Jesus says. I'm going to give you the figures to punch in and see if you're interested. We have so much to see. Our series is titled, Count the Cost. It's going to complete the eighth chapter of Mark. And so we're so excited to see what the Lord will do during this time in his word. So with that, let's look at our text. Mark 8, verse 34. Mark 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, as we read this text, I am immediately reminded of how inadequate I am to deliver this to your people. Lord, we cannot receive this message apart from your Holy Spirit. So teach us to count the cost. Cause us to look soberly and honestly at what it means to be a follower of Christ. Help us all to hear and to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that a pastor or a teacher does when he's preparing to to teach a gospel or an epistle or a book in the Bible, the very first thing we do, and this will sound earth shattering to you, is that we read the book. We read the book. And depending on how long it is, we may read it a few times through again and again, taking in the big picture of it. And of course, I did this with the gospel of Mark. And as I'm reading through, you come across scenes and verses and stories that make you stop. Sayings that land like a brick in your soul. Hinge points of the gospel that you know the entire door swings upon. There are verses that you feel completely inadequate as a preacher to deliver to the flock. They're too big and they're too awesome. That's why most pastors won't go anywhere near the book of Romans until they're at least 10 years into the pastorate. Well, there are about three or four places in Mark where I felt that way that a terrible responsibility hung on the text to get it right, that the implications and the applications are so vast and so vital that I wish delivering it to the saints this morning had fallen to an abler man. The text in our series is one of those places, and we must get this right. We must not miss this. Jesus is about to define what it looks like to walk out the gospel. Jesus is going to put to us the cost of discipleship. As we said, if Jesus had ever given an altar call in the gospels, this would be it. This is a gut check. This is a heart check. Jesus is going to challenge us if we claim we are a follower of Christ. What has your faith cost you? Indeed, how valuable is a faith that costs you nothing to hold? We're going to behold the reality of the Christian life. 
that it is one of self-denial, not self-gratification. That there is a metaphorical cross with your name on it. That you are called to a life of obedience and of sacrifice, of self-denial, and even of danger. I know it's very difficult to fill a building with that message. And we don't say that as a lament of our current culture. Saints, it has always been this way. Nobody ever liked Jesus' altar calls. Jesus knew how to clear a room. If you recall, he had many disciples following him all the way back to John 6 till he gave an altar call. Come, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you don't, you can have no part of me. Poof, the room was cleared and there were 12 guys left standing there. We only see the crowds for the miracles. We only see the crowds when they seek what he can do for them. But now, you 12, you want the real deal? You want to follow me? Then listen to this. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it costs. And most will scatter like the wind. Gone. It's no different today than from then. The true call of the gospel, the call to bid thee come and serve, to bid thee come and obey, to bid thee come and die. That's a lonely message. Jesus' altar call would empty a room, but it is the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's Jesus' gospel. And while we are going to see the cost, while we're going to see the required investment, it's not a blind investment. God shows us the reward in the same prospectus. So without further ado, let's open this magnificent piece of Scripture, beginning with verse 34. I'll read it again. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, some of you may recall in a recent message, we talked about the pain of a surgeon's scalpel, didn't we? That both a surgeon holding a scalpel and a person holding a knife can both cut and they can both cause pain. But the difference was in the one that was wielding the blade. For the difference, the difference is for the believer that the pain of the scalpel is wrought from the master's hands. We have a gangrenous limb that needs to be amputated or a tumor of sin that's being removed for our eternal good. Every person in the world is subject to the pain of the blade in life. All will be cut. All will bleed. The distinction for the Christian is that our Heavenly Father holds the blade. And here as we begin our text, we're going to see the same circumstance. Look and see who we have present with us today. First part of verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. So we see both. We see the crowd and we see the disciples. Don't miss that. Don't miss that given what Jesus is about to say. This terribly hard and crushing message he's about to deliver. An invitation to the way of the cross. A call to follow me and die. I don't know about you, but I get a little squeamish around some certain medical procedures. There are some that when you hear about them, they can make you very squeamish. And for me, one of those procedures is when a doctor has to re-break a bone to set it properly. Doesn't that just sound like the worst? Well, as Jesus gathers both the crowd and the disciples himself in this text, I want you to hear the sound of bones being broken because that's what's happening here. We have two groups of people, two sets of bones, if you will. We have the crowd, which is rarely a positive thing, right? When we see it in Mark. 
And we have the disciples. And here Jesus is putting his devastating gospel out there indiscriminately for all to hear. Why would I call it a devastating gospel? I thought gospel, euangelion, meant good news. And indeed it is good news. But good news for whom? For whom? It's good news for those who are being saved. But it is devastating for those who are under wrath. That Jesus Christ was crucified, that he was died and was buried, that he rose again on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father is the most terrifying, devastating news in all of redemptive history for those who are outside of Christ. Our good news, our gospel, the euangelion, is the most beautiful devastation ever wrought. Jesus Christ is either the rock upon which you stand, the firmest of foundations, But Scripture says that same rock will grind the unsaved to powder. That they will cry out for the mountains to fall on them on that day. That's devastating. It's a devastating gospel. It is bone-breaking. It's bone-crushing. If you want to follow me, come and die. Snap, go the bones. And they must be broken. Why? Well, that depends on the audience. For the crowd... They're going to hear this message and it's going to do them in. It is going to guarantee that they walk away forever. The bones of their spiritual body are being irreparably broken. Just like when Jesus said, come, eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't, you can have no part of me. Snap, go the bones. These are hard sayings. I cannot reconcile this. This is too hard. This is too much. I'm out of here. The bones of the crowd... The bones of the fair-weather followers have been broken unto damnation. They cannot walk after Jesus because they will not walk after Jesus. Their disobedience and hardness of heart will be the cause of their inability to come and respond in repentance and faith. But here are the true disciples in our text as well. And they were called to Jesus with the crowd, aren't they? And Jesus says, I'm about to level you all. I'm about to break every bone in your spiritual body with the same message. The crowd and the disciples are getting the same devastating call of the true gospel. But what's the difference, beloved? Listen to this. Jesus is breaking the bones of the disciples to reset them. To reset them. This is going to hurt, but it needs to be done. If you do not follow me on the way to Calvary, if your steps are not the steps of the cross, then you have no part of me. The system that you have been raised in, the twisted Judaism, it broke your bones under the weight of its legalism, and it's now hardened, and it's calcified that way, and your arms and your legs are crooked. You cannot come after me in this condition. But it's going to hurt, beloved. But we've got to break those bones and reset them. We must. What you have learned up to this point in your life is not the true gospel. And your bones have hardened and they're crooked and unusable. Before God uses a man or woman or a child, God breaks that man, woman, or child. He has to reset the bones. So what is this crushing gospel? What is this gospel message that would sound off as a foreign language in many churches in America today? Let's look at our text. 
Jesus speaks, open quote, if anyone wishes to come after me. We have to stop there. We have buried treasure to behold. A few things to note. First question, who is Jesus talking about here? Well, one might be tempted to jump on the word anyone, right? Anyone, everyone. That's who Jesus is talking about, right? But the answer is not simply anyone by itself. Meaning Jesus is not broadly talking to the whole world here. Some may be tempted to say, well, it looks like Jesus is saying anyone can come after him. Not at all. That pesky English once again betrays us to the uttermost. Here in the Greek, anyone is given, the word anyone is given a descriptive. It's given an adjective. These anyones are described. And how are they described? It's in the very next word. These anyones are what? They're wishing. If anyone wishes. However, the English again fails us here. When our American ears hear wishes or wishing, what do we think of? Well, I'm a wishing and a hoping, right? Sure wish I could do that. Do you ever wish you could just fill in the blank? That's how we use the word wishing. Not so to our original audience. The word is thalo here. That means a determined and constant exercise of the will. Boy, that's not how we use the word wishing, is it? So if we expand out Jesus' words here, he's saying anyone who has a determined, continuous will to follow me. Anyone who has a determined, continuous will to follow me. Well, who is that? Is that the lost world? Does the lost world have a determined, continuous desire to follow Jesus? Of course not. The world is dead in their sins, Ephesians 2.1. Their deeds are evil continuously, Genesis 6.5. They're spiritually blind, unable to see, 1 Corinthians 2.14. So does anyone, so anyone does not mean everyone, does it? We're talking about anyone who has a determined and continuous will to follow Christ. What must that person do? What is going to be the evidence that they have a continuous determination to follow Christ? That they wish to follow Christ? Well, Jesus is about to start laying out the fruit. What fruit is going to accompany the true disciple of Christ? How does someone who has counted the cost of discipleship live? What are your motives, your desires, your thoughts, your choices, your actions? What drives, what's directing you? Step one, back to our text. If anyone wishes to come after me, what's step one? He must deny himself. I think we all know that we could just drop anchor right there for the rest of 2022, couldn't we? We don't have to go any further. No, there's so much to unearth in this statement. This is step one, isn't it? If we haven't gotten here, that means we're still at the starting line. Or worse yet, we're still a dead fish floating downstream. He must deny himself. Well, the original language is so very instructive to us here. We first see that we must. Now, this is given in the absolute command sense. For our extra credit congregants, that's the aorist imperative. You must, must do it and do it now is what that means. Well, do what? What must we do with all haste and intensity? Deny himself. Deny himself. Well, there are two words that Jesus could have used for deny. One is a softer usage and one is very hard. Guess which one Jesus uses? He uses the hard one. 
specifically meaning, quote, to have absolutely no association with or to disown completely without reservation or hesitation. Close quote. Don't let the English fool you. We read, he must deny himself. But what, Je- but what is Jesus saying to the original audience here? Right here, right now, I command you immediately, with all intensity, you must have absolutely no association with, disown completely, without reservation or hesitation, the person you once were. That's what he's saying. You must deny yourself. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I'll tell you, some are tempted to hear this without hearing this. Many hear that, well, I need, that means I need to stop doing this or that, right? I'm going to deny myself sugar during Lent. Many hear deny yourself as a call to give up something maybe, right? Like a, a person at the dessert section of the buffet. I'm going to deny myself. But listen to Jesus' words. He's not telling us to deny something. He's telling us to deny someone. Yourself. Here's where the numbers start adding up on the calculator as we sit down to count the cost. To deny yourself means that your identity is gone. You're not denying something, you're denying someone. When you're asked for your identification, there's your smiling face. And your name? Disciple of Christ. Follower of Christ. Address? Not of this world. Not of this world. Adam is dead. I'm a new creation. I'm given a new heart with new desires. I do not live for me. To deny myself is to abandon my identity. And this is monumental. Because how much of what we do centers around an image that we want to have. Our entire world system right now is run by your identity and what it happens to be. Does it not? How you identify determines everything about you in our time. Age, skin color, gender. Saints, how can we do that if we have denied ourselves? When our only label is that of Christ follower. This is one reason of many why critical race theory and cultural Marxism are so very toxic and corrosive in the church. It is antithetical to the true gospel call. Come, deny yourself. You're not black or white. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. You have denied yourself. You are in Christ, and that is all. And when we do deny our when we do not deny ourselves, when our image or identity controls us, what people think controls us. Fear of man, rooted in a need for acceptance, now dictates our actions because it's still about us. My image, my identity. Deny yourself. Paul says to die to self. Our old self was crucified, Romans 6 6. When you were bought, you were bought as a slave, marked and branded. Someone now owns you. Do you like that idea, Lanesville, 2022? Do you identify as a slave? Not calling your own shots? The only identity that you have is the one that's given to you by your master? Do you like that? Do you really? Or are you Mr. and Mrs. Independent? Charting your own course? Just doing you? Bad news. Bad news, saints. Every person listening to this message is a slave. You will either embrace Christ deny yourself and be a slave of Christ 
or you will embrace yourself and are a slave of sin. The question is not whether or not we are bound as slaves. We all are. The question is who we serve. Deny yourself. Give up your identity. We need a new master. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Paul tells the Galatians. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. We are not men pleasers, Paul tells the Ephesians, but slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Where you sit today, Romans 6.18, you are a slave, a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Paul goes on, do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. A Christian has a new master. Hang up our identity and all the work that goes along with keeping it up. We are to be a slave of Christ. We are who He says we are. We do what He says to do. And He is a good, good master. Moving on in our text, many of you are familiar with a a saying in biblical counseling that exhorts us in the principle of both putting off and putting on. For example, we put off sin and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's two sides of the same coin. If we were to do only one, if we were to just put off, we would be naked. But we must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we see Jesus using the same principle here in our text. What are we putting off? Self. Deny yourself. Put off yourself. But what now, dear saints, are we putting on? Back in our text. Is it a shimmering white robe? Is it a coat of many colors? Not hardly. Put off yourself. That's hard enough. But now what do I put on? It says a cross. A cross. A splintered, bloody cross. Take up his cross, our text says. Well, here, saints, we need to set aside our modern understanding. We need to set aside our gold cross necklace image. We must understand the cross we are to bear, not the cross we are to wear. If we are to understand how the original audience was to receive this from Jesus, that one must take up their cross, we must see a cross as they saw a cross. To us, the cross is ultimately a beautiful thing. It's a symbol of our freedom of a wretched event that led to our salvation. We see the cross with a halo around it in our mind, don't we? But the audience hearing Jesus, did they look at the cross that way? Absolutely not. Not in the least. And we must see the cross as they saw the cross in order to understand the meaning of the text. What was the cross to these people? It was a scandal. It was the most tragic, obscene punishment in the Roman world. It was reserved for the most despicable criminals. It was so feared and despised that no Roman citizen was even allowed to be executed in this way. Saints, listen to this. When we hear Jesus say, take up our cross, we're thinking about Jesus on the cross. Our context is Jesus on the cross and all that it accomplished in all of its glory. I can almost guarantee that that's what came into your mind when we read the text. But here's the problem, saints. The cross hasn't happened yet. 
Calvary is still to come. It's still to come. So banish from your thinking all the wonderful things that we associate with the cross today because none of that was in their understanding. It had not happened yet. All they knew was that this was the most awful, most horrible way to die. Nothing noble, no serene painting with three crosses up on a hill, none of that, just a bloody, grueling, agonizing death. A prolonged death for the purpose of torture. No grand gesture. The lowest of the low for the worst of the worst. And this would have sent shockwaves through every person hearing this. We must hear this call to take up our cross as they heard the call. We must understand it as they understood it. Come and suffer. Come and die in the lowest of ways, reserved for the most shameful of crimes. The world will not esteem you. They will not applaud you for choosing to follow me. They will want to kill you. And not just kill you, but make a public spectacle of your death. They will hate you. They will kill you in a way that is reserved only for the worst terrorists and criminals. But it's not the cross so much that we're focused on in these four words here. We must also see the taking up of the cross. The taking up. The process of taking up the cross is equally as important as the cross itself. Listen to one author's description of the event. Quote, If the accused was found guilty of a capital crime, he would be sentenced to death by crucifixion. The criminal would be forced to carry his crossbar through the streets of the city to the execution site on the outskirts of town. This was known as the dreaded death march. It was a public display of his guilt before the watching world, and it was intended to heap great shame on the condemned. Carrying one's cross was a forced admission of guilt under the law. It was really an agreement with the verdict of the higher court. And as the criminal carried his crossbeam, the people of the city would line both sides of the streets. This was meant to be a public spectacle. It signified that this offender was condemned by Rome and worthy of death. That this despised individual was considered to be a dead man walking. It would be upon the criminal's crossbeam that he would be nailed and lifted up to die. Close quote. Deny yourself, take up your cross. And let us remember, beloved, when, where was Mark written? In Rome. When was Mark written? During the reign of Nero. And what was Nero doing to Christians? He was crucifying them. This horrible death is not an abandonment by God. In fact, Marcus, Jesus is saying you're never more connected to your Lord and Savior than when they mount you on that tree. And Peter would, know, would so understand the closeness of that connection that he would later be asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy. He was not worthy. Well, that's what it was for that generation of believers. What is it today? What does it mean in Lanesville 2022 to take up your cross? Well, there's much misapplication of what it means to take up your cross, to bear your cross. How do most people often apply this? You know, a cross is what? Well, they really apply a cross to any hardship, don't they? 
a rough patch in life. Everything from the loss of a job to the loss of a parking spot, right? A challenge or a tragedy that befalls someone in life. Circumstances go bad, right? And you hear people say, well, just bury my cross, right? This is my cross to bear. But is that what it means? Is Jesus talking about hard times in life? Is he talking about dealing with various calamities and hardships? Most of the time, no. The presence of a difficult circumstance alone is not what Jesus means to take up your cross. A trial alone is not a cross. A cross is a wound. It's a pain. It's a challenge or a hardship that is endured for the sake of Christ. A cross is something that we bear when we suffer as a direct result of following Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross. What are you suffering for the sake of Christ? That's your cross. I once read that someone said their mother-in-law was their cross to bear. I said, no, she may be cross, but she's not a cross, right? There's a family member who may not speak with you because of your faith in Christ. That's a cross. Have you lost a job or a promotion because of your convictions or beliefs? That's a cross. Have you suffered ridicule from friends and neighbors for your testimony? That's a cross. Of course, many listening read the the periodical publication from the Voice of the Martyrs, right? Highlighting the stories of people who are suffering for Christ. They are taking up their cross. The Christian life lived out loud comes with a cross. There are no exceptions. A Christian life that comes with no cross is not a Christian life. If one cannot point to a loss that they have suffered in their life because of the testimony of Christ in their life, they're either very new in the faith or they're hiding their light. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. If they hated me, they will hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. That's our cross. What have we suffered for Christ? Now, we're not martyrs looking for a way to be persecuted. That's not necessary, saints. Live your Christian life out loud and you will suffer. You have Jesus' word on it. You have his word. That's the gospel. After taking up that cross, we do what? Last part of our text. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow Jesus how? What is Mark's audience hearing and understanding of that? After you've taken up your cross, what walk does the condemned perform? We've already read it. It's the death march. It's the death march along a street lined with those who are mocking and jeering you. We don't know where that journey will take us. For many who have gone before us, it was a march straight up to Calvary. More Christians have been killed in this century than all previous centuries combined. What does this message mean to those believers still in Afghanistan? Follow me. You don't know what will be required of you. You don't know who's going to travel along with you on this journey. Just that you are walking in the footsteps of your master. That means saying no to yourself. It means saying no often to those who love us most. Many desire the Christian life. It is adorned with wonderful fruit. Who doesn't want forgiveness? 
Who doesn't want to live forever in paradise? Who doesn't want the sense of family and community that cannot be replicated outside of the church and fellowship with the Spirit? Oh, the world lines up for these things. Indeed, many churches are filled with those who desire these things. But Jesus is saying, no. Go and sit down. Grab your calculator, because it's all about the cost. And sadly, when most are given the figures, they turn and they run. The true gospel call will not fill a church building. It will usually clear a room. Dr. Stephen Lawson writes, quote, Coming to Christ demands highest priority over every aspect of your life. It necessitates the submission of your will to His Lordship. The path requires your sacrifice and even your willingness to suffer for Him. To be sure, Jesus will not follow you. You are called to follow Him. Following Christ will cost you much. It will cost you your old way of life, forfeiting your past sins. It will cost you your life of ease and living for this world. It will cost you old habits and old associations. It will cost you following your own agenda for your life. It will cost you time and treasure. It will cost you suffering for being identified with Him. It will cost you opposition and persecution from the world. It may even cost you your life. But in the end, you gain far more than you lose. Close quote. That's the cost. That's the cost of following Jesus. That's the cost of discipleship. It is immeasurably high. The question for our hearts today, beloved, is this the gospel that you responded to when you were born again? For which of you, Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, desires to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You have the initial figures for the journey. But will you pay the price? If no, then say no. Better that than to fool oneself for years in a church pew. When I was confronted with the cost of following Christ, when I sat down to consider whether I had enough to complete the journey, I cried out of myself, I do not, Lord. I cannot do this within myself. I cannot deny myself. Take up my cross and follow you, not without the intimate help of the Holy Spirit. Someone once asked theologian A.W. Tozer, what does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? And he said three things. Number one, a man who is crucified is facing only one way. Number two, A man who is crucified is not going back. He has said goodbye. And number three, he has no further plans of his own. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis for his testimony of Christ, famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Count the cost. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Set your jaw like a flint toward heaven and don't look back let's pray heavenly father these are difficult verses 
Lord, these are verses that grab hold of us and that demand to do battle with our own heart as we consider and count the cost. Lord, if there be anything in us that we are holding back, Lord, if there be any part of our life, of our identity, of who we are that we hold on to, Lord, we ask that today would be the day we set that aside. Lord, that we make the great exchange in favor of the master who has bought us at such a great price. We ask that you would watch over us this week, heal those who are suffering sickness, that we might all be together again. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.